We're going to uh, wrap up our series that we started three weeks ago entitled Grow. And we started this series called Grow three weeks ago because we wanted to talk about for three weeks, what did it mean to take all of these big ideas that we hear at church, whether it's in a sermon or a Bible study, uh, whether it's uh, reading a book, doing our own personal study, what does it mean to take all of these big ideas and to flesh them out in our lives so they actually become a reality in our lives, so we actually begin to see the truth of God manifest themselves in every aspect and area of our life as we desire to grow in our relationship with God. But many people ask the fair question, I know I'm supposed to grow in my relationship with God. I know I'm supposed to take these big lofty truths and see them manifested in our lives. But a lot of us, if we're honest, don't even know how to grow. What is the process of growth? What is the process of growing in our relationship with God? Uh, We started a few weeks ago by asking the question, what are the disciplines that cause us to grow into the person that God has designed us to be? What are the disciplines that cause us to grow into the person that God has designed us to be? And we've looked at Philippians chapter 2 as the basis for this series, where the Apostle Paul says that we are called to work out our salvation. As I said the last two weeks, not work for our salvation. Christ has worked for our salvation. Christ has worked for our salvation and purchased it for us. And now in light of that, we are now called to work out our salvation, to see it manifested in every facet and area of life. And so we're going to wrap up this series by looking at a very honest, maybe even raw, Psalm, Psalm 42, because it's in Psalm 42 that the psalmist has a very real, raw, genuine, honest expression towards God that he knows he's supposed to grow. He knows he's supposed to feel this real sense and presence of the living God in his life, but he doesn't feel it anymore. He doesn't sense his presence anymore. And so I want to talk about what does it mean to grow in our relationship with God when we don't desire it? Let's look at Psalm 42 this morning. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By the day... The Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me or forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The grass withers and the flower surely fades, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Amen. The, in many homes, there is often a story or stories that capture the imagination and the hearts of little children. Could be a book, story, television program, or a movie. One of the stories that have captured the imagination of our children at home is none other than Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh is this classic story of a little bear called Winnie the Pooh that obsessed with honey and has his little friends, Tigger, Piglet, Rabbit, Owl, and Christopher Robin. And all of the characters at any given time are characters that you would want to dress up as and children would love to emulate. But there's one character in the Winnie the Pooh story that I didn't mention, and it's Eeyore. And Eeyore is the unfortunate character in the Winnie the Pooh story that nobody ever wants to emulate. Eeyore is the one unfortunate character that nobody ever, no kid wants to dress up as. No kid wants to pretend they're Eeyore. Give me the Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, Rabbit, Al, even Christopher Robin, but never does a child want to be like Eeyore. See, Eeyore is that unfortunate character in the Winnie the Pooh story that never seems to have his act together. Eeyore is the unfortunate character in the story that things just don't always go as planned. He's that unfortunate character that everything always seems like it's upside down and inside out. But if we're really honest, even as adults... If we're really honest, all of us at some time in our life, maybe even right now, experience an Eeyore moment or experience an Eeyore season where it just doesn't seem like anything's going as planned. Like it just doesn't seem like anything is going your way. And it causes you to live in such a state where everything comes out negative, where everything comes out the glass is half empty, where everything comes out like it's absolutely storming in every area of life. Well, the psalmist here in Psalm 42 is describing a very Eeyore moment. You see, Psalm 42 is not the psalm where, as we talked about last week, that leads you to raise up your hands in adoration. It's not the psalm that maybe we've read that uh, talks about praising God in his mighty temple. It doesn't talk about rejoicing. It doesn't talk about how happy life is. It doesn't talk about how swimmingly things are going in life. It's a very raw honest approach to life, that for the psalmist in Psalm 42, everything surely does seem like it's turned upside down and inside out. You see, the psalmist believes in God, he knows God, but the psalmist is honestly admitting that he doesn't feel the real presence of God in his life. He feels disconnected from God. You might even call this a a state of spiritual dryness or even a state of spiritual depression. I'm not growing. I'm not feeling the real sense and presence of God. And so for a few minutes, I want us to unpack this 
because it has everything to do with this idea of growing in our relationship with God. As I said in the introduction, what does it mean to grow with God when I don't desire him? Let's unpack this together this morning. The first thing I want us to see here in Psalm 42 is the psalmist shares with us the condition in which he is living He's describing the condition of his soul, the state of where he is spiritually, and he compares himself to, to a deer. He says in verse 1, as a deer pants for f- streams of flowing water, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now a deer is not a dumb animal. A deer is not the type of animal that goes to the streams of living water uh, when he's about to die. The, The animal knows exactly where the streams of living water are. And so when describing himself like a deer, he's describing this state of going to the stream over and over and over again to the point where he realizes that the stream has turned into a dry riverbed. He compares his life to that of a deer, and he he compares God to a dry riverbed. He knows God is there, but he doesn't sense him. His thirst is no longer being quenched by God, by the living God. And you see, the deer panting here in Psalm 42 is not just a thirsty deer that simply needs to quench its thirst and then it can go back to its normal and regular activities. The idea of a panting deer is a deer that is at the point of death. That the riverbed has so dried up for him, his relationship with God is so dry that he is on the verge of death. He is panting. Desperate, desperate to be quenched, desperate for his thirst to be quenched by the living God. So it's a condition of life and death that the psalmist finds himself in, literally feeling himself thirsting and dying to experience God once again relationally disconnected from God. But what's interesting in verse two, it says, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the psalmist has not given up on God. It's not that the psalmist doesn't believe in God. He believes in God, but he wants to what? He wants to sense the presence of not just God, but the living God. The idea of the living God here in Psalm 42 is a God that is alive. And what the psalmist is trying to say is, God, I know that you're there. I know that you're real. I know that you exist. The psalmist didn't abandon God. But he says, I want you to feel alive to me again. I want to sense your presence. It even says at the end of verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? He's talking about the face of God. It's the face of God all throughout Scripture, which is the source of hope and life and comfort and security. He's saying, in my desperation, I want to sense and see the real presence and the face of God again, the living God. I want God to come alive to me. I've lost the relational presence of God. Nothing resonates anymore. He's describing a state, a condition of spiritual dryness, even spiritual deadness. He is indifferent and apathetic towards God. It's important for us to understand who is writing this psalm, though, because it says a lot. 
about the condition that he finds himself in. This psalm is not a psalm of David. It's a psalm, it might be in your study Bible, it's a psalm of the son of Korah, the sons of Korah. Who were the sons of Korah? We learn about the sons of Korah in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 3 that we read that the sons of Korah were the professional temple musicians. It's Julianne and Bernie. It's what they did. They gathered everybody in the sanctuary, the sanctuary of the temple of God. They were professional musicians that led the people of God in song, that led the people of God in worship. And we learn throughout history that the sons of Korah were captured and taken up north into exile, stripped away from their profession, stripped away from their calling, no longer living in the southern area of Judah, no longer practicing their calling in the temple. And they're in exile, ripped away from the temple in the north. And why do I mention that? Because often when we go through times of spiritual dryness or deadness, it is easy to look around and say, it is because of this circumstance in my life that I'm spiritually dry, or it is because of that person that I am spiritually disconnected from God. But the psalmist never does that. He could have easily in Psalm 42 said, it's because of my captors, it's because of my captivity, it's because of the enemy of God. But instead, what does he do? It says that he looks down into his soul. He does not blame his external circumstances. He says, my spiritual dryness and my spiritual deadness and my disconnection from God and my indifference to God and the things of God, there is nobody out there to blame. I have to look deep down into my soul to find out what is going on inside here. And I want to encourage us to do the same as well. Those times of feeling indifferent and apathetic to God and to the ways of God, that you would not look around and say, well, if the church would just have this program, if the school would do this, if I would have this group of friends, if this person wouldn't talk to me this way, if that person wouldn't look at me this way, then I would be reconnected to God and everything would be great. No, the psalmist says, dig deep. Look into your soul to find out what is going on. So if that is the condition that the psalmist is experiencing, what is the result What is the result that the psalmist describes about being disconnected and spiritually dry? The first thing that we see in verse 4 and 6 is a loss of community. It was the loss of community that was a result of his spiritual dryness and deadness. In verse 4 it says, These things I remember. He begins to remember something. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. Remember I said they were professional temple musicians. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's describing the pilgrim festivals that the, Jew, that, that the Jewish people would celebrate all year. All year there are Jewish festivals that they would come together and they would celebrate in the temple courts. And what would they do? They would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would recount the things of God. They would thank God for his provisions and through it they would recommit their lives to God. And what he's saying is I can no longer do that. I've lost my community. I've lost the people of God. I've lost being together with my fellow brothers and sisters. You see, one of the the results of being disconnected from God is that not only are you disconnected vertically, but you're disconnected horizontally. That you need one another. 
to be encouraged, to be reaffirmed, for your faith to be reaffirmed. See, when you are feeling distant from God, the worst thing you can do is say, I'm going to take a little break from church. I'm going to take a semester off of Bible study. I'm going to take a break from this, or I'm going to take a break of that. No, instead, God says, I want to push you further into community because it is the community of the people of God that will be the remedy for your soul, that you can lean on people. And that's what we want this church to be. A church that when you are going through a spiritually dry time or season in your life, that it doesn't cause you to retreat, that it causes you to freely admit, I need help. I need a brother and a sister to walk alongside of me to point my eyes towards heaven because all I can do is point my eyes towards the ground right now. We need community. The second result of this feeling disconnected from God. In verse three, it says, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? When you go through these times of spiritual dryness and disconnect, it actually can lead to a place of disillusionment where you can begin to be tempted by the evil one. Does God even exist? Is God even real? Where is God? Where is God in the pain? Where is God in the turmoil? Where is God in this relationship? Where is God in my marriage? Where is God in my children? Where is God at home? Where is God in the church? Where is God at work? Where is God in the world? How could this happen if there is a God? And the greatest temptation, because he was feeling disconnected from the presence of God here in Psalm 42, is that the evil one was sending messengers. Where's your God? Does God even really exist? Because if there was a God, this would never happen, right? The psalmist was becoming disillusioned or running the temptation of being disillusioned to the presence of God. And then lastly, not only is there a loss of community, not only does he, is he tempted with doubting the existence of God, but then we see a real sense of physical depression and breakdown. Verse 3, it says, My tears have been my food day and night. We're forever grateful for the great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached at Westminster Chapel for so many years in London. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, before he was a preacher, he was a physician. And his commentary on, ver- on chapter 42 tells us that not only was the psalmist describing real spiritual depression and breakdown and disconnect, but it was leading to a real physical depression and breakdown as well that he was starting to become so disillusioned and disconnected and indifferent to God and the things of God that it was actually beginning to take a toll on his body. Day and night, describing this season of his life where he could no longer sleep and that his tears had become his food, meaning that he no longer could even stomach to eat anymore, that the only food that was nourishing his body was his tears. So he's describing no longer sleeping, no longer eating, that this indifference to God, this state of spiritual dryness and disconnect was taking a real toll on him physically. So we begin to lose community, we begin to become disillusioned to God, and it actually begins to take a toll on our body. My tears have become my food day and night. So therefore, what is the cure? What can be the cure for those of us that find find ourselves, whether it's today or tomorrow, find our spouse, find our kids, find our friends and family in this state 
a spiritual dryness or spiritual deadness to God and the things of God? What is the cure? I want to leave you with three practical things found in this passage. The first one is this. We have to to learn what it means to pour out our soul. We see it here in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. What does that mean? Why is it important for us in these, in these conditions to learn the healthy discipline of pouring out our soul to God? It's because you don't see here the psalmist retreating from God, but instead he's being honest with God. The psalmist gives us the freedom to pour out our soul to God. If you come to worship every Sunday at Coleridge and you're just not feeling it anymore... Tell God that. You come to Bible study and you're not getting anything out out of it? Tell God that. You're in a prayer circle on a weekly basis and you, you pray and you hear the other people around you praying and there's nothing that's clicking or resonating. The worst thing that you can do is to retreat and to be silent. The psalmist gives us the freedom to cry out to God, to pour out our soul. God, I'm not getting anything from worship. I'm not getting anything out of the Bible study I'm attending. I'm not getting anything out of my prayer meeting. Be honest. If you can't say anything to God other than, I want to sense you again. I want to sense your presence. I want to sense the presence of the living God, and I don't anymore. The greatest thing that you can do is pour out your soul to him. The second thing, the second cure, listen to your soul. Verse 5 and 11, the psalmist doesn't have a conversation with the, the other, uh, with the, his friends. He doesn't have a conversation with this person to his right or to his left. Who does he have a conversation with? He has a conversation with his soul. He begins to speak to his soul, and he begins to ask it questions. In verse 5 and 11, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? The psalmist is not asking a rhetorical question. He actually wants answers. What is he looking for? What information is he looking for from his soul? He wants to know, soul, where is your hope? Soul, what have you settled for? Soul, what are the false hopes that have captured you? He's asking a real honest question. He is doing some real honest spiritual examination and inventory into his soul that I would recommend every single person in this room do, even today. Soul, where does your hope lie right now? Where is your hope? He wants to know. He wants to listen to it. Soul, where is your hope lie? Where have you located your hope? Tom Brady, MVP quarterback for the New England Patriots, interviewed several years ago by 60 Minutes, says this. Why do I have multiple Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it's all about. I've reached my goal, I've reached my dream, I've done everything I've wanted to accomplish in life. But me? I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all it's cracked up to be, is it? The interviewer pressed Brady as to what the right answer was, and Brady added this. What's the answer to hope? What's the answer to life? I wish I knew. 
I love playing football, and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts of me that I'm just trying to find out. You see, you could have the world. You could have everything the world says could be yours, and it'll never be enough. Look deep down into your soul. Where does your hope lie today? We need to pour out our soul to God. We need to listen to our soul. And then lastly, we need to preach to our soul. At the second half of verse 5 and verse 11, what does he do? He begins to preach to his soul. And after asking the question to his soul of where his hope was lying, what does he say to his soul at the end of verse 5 and the end of verse 11? He says, hope in God. And that is probably the most important thing that we can do for our souls when we find ourselves in this condition. Because there are times where we just need to stop listening to our soul, the soul that our soul that wakes us up every morning screaming to us, saying how much we need to do for our approval, our significance, and our security. And there are sometimes we need to take our soul and to take our heart and say, I need you to be quiet and now listen to me. And you preach to it. You preach to your soul, hope in God, that you tell your soul to be quiet. I've heard enough, and you will now listen to me with the hope and the confidence of the gospel that they should hope in God. And the result is for the psalmist at the end of verse 5. For I shall again praise him. He doesn't say, I will praise you right now, but he doesn't also say, I will never praise you. He has the hope and the confidence because of the hope that he has in a future Messiah that I will one day praise you again, O God. And that's what we need to tell our souls. Hope in God. Hope in God. My salvation and my hope. But I want to ask you this question. For the psalmist, what was the source of this hope? Is it enough just to cry out to our soul and say, hope in God and walk away? What did he actually preach to his soul? What was the source of his hope? What was the object of the hope of the psalmist? We find the answer in verse 9. In verse 9 it says, I say to God what? My rock. Who is the rock? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul tells us who the rock is. Paul tells us that the rock is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He is the rock of my salvation. He is the rock of your salvation. Jesus is the rock. He is the rock that the psalmist looked forward to in hope and in faith and the rock that we look back in faith to. He is the source of our salvation. He is the only source of our hope. So that when we read Psalm 42, we cannot read Psalm 42 without thinking of Jesus Christ. We cannot read Psalm 42 without thinking of the cross. Because it was on the cross that Jesus heard these very words, Where is your God? It was on the cross that he experienced what? Abandonment, but real abandonment. He was really forsaken by God. And it was on the cross that Jesus really experienced dryness. 
He experienced the ultimate dryness to the point where he cries out from the cross, I thirst. You see, it was on the cross of Jesus Christ that Jesus experienced the ultimate spiritual depression and the ultimate spiritual disconnect when the God, the Father, turned his back on God, the Son. And God did all of this so that when we are going through this, through times of spiritual dryness and spiritual disconnect, we can always look to the cross and say, God will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He will never leave my, my thirst unquenched because he did it all to Jesus. He will never abandon me because he abandoned his son. He will never leave me my thirst unquenched because he left his son's thirst unquenched on the cross. And so when we read Psalm 42, we read it with our eyes fixed on the cross. How do you grow when you're running on empty? You preach Christ to your weary soul. He is the source and the object and the rock of our hope and our salvation. How do I grow when I cannot find God? We remember this, that we find God because God first found us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only message in the world that gives us this good news that while we were lost, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it is the only religion, the only philosophy, the only ideology in the world that says that you do not have to live your life on a path to find God. But the good news of Christianity is God has come on a path to find you. We find God because God first found us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I end with this by asking you this question. Today, where does your hope lie? There are many things in this world, there are many things in this life that you can hope in. A career, fortune, a job, a relationship, a spouse, children, a home, a vacation, how you look and how you appear, approval, significance, security, you name it, the list goes on and on. There are hundreds and hundreds of things that this day you can hope in. And I ask you this, where is your hope today? Is it in Jesus and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection as the only hope for life and for death? On Friday, we celebrated the life of Ann Kennedy with a glorious funeral of music and testimony and flowers and a space in our sanctuary filled with people that wanted to honor and remember her life. But you know, not every funeral is like that. In fact, Philip Yancey tells a story of traveling to a remote village in Africa a village that did not believe in God and did not have the hope of the afterlife. And he happened to be there and attending a funeral service for one of the people in the village. And he said it was the most peculiar funeral service I've ever been to. The family gathered around the casket. There was no music. There was no flowers. There wasn't even a tear. And they said their goodbyes. And they passed out a peppermint to everyone in attendance. And everybody unwrapped the peppermint, they put it in their mouth, and the peppermint dissolved. And as soon as the peppermint dissolves, they all walked and went their own way because they believed that that's what all life was about. There is no reason to celebrate. No flowers, no music, 
just a peppermint in the mouth that just disappears and dissolves and vanishes. And you sit there today and you probably go, that's absurd, that's ridiculous. But I'm telling you this right now. If your hope is in anything other than Jesus Christ, that might as well be your funeral. Just gather a group of people around a casket and put a peppermint in your mouth and everybody's mouth and just walk away because there is nothing to celebrate without the hope of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground, the sinking sand. Why is your soul downcast? Hope in God. Why is your soul downcast? Hope in God the rock of our salvation.